At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Hello, how are you? And welcome along to our first episode of 90 Men's brand new podcast series. It's called Football's Climate Conversation, in which we take a look at how climate change is affecting our beautiful game. It's a key topic, of course, ahead of the FIFA World Cup. And there's been claims that around the tournament, it's going to be carbon neutral. So that's what we're going to be discussing in our first episode of the series. And pleased to say we're in very, very good company for this one. Uh, Our guest, David Goldblatt, Football for Futures Chief Advisor uh, is with us. He also wrote Playing Against the Clock, a report which provided the first provisional estimate of the impact of global sport on the climate. David, welcome. How are you? I'm all right. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Very, very pleased that you're here. And also Katie Road, uh, Hearts and New Zealand striker, trustee and on the board for football for future uh, and a, a forward thinking and vocal sustainability advocate in sport. Uh, Katie, it's great to have you with us and well done on a big three points and two goals at the weekend. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, good to get three points on the board. Although it was only one goal, but okay. you know, we'll just say two. We'll just say <laughs> yeah. two. It always sounds good. Three points, it counts. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, thank you both uh, for being with us. Uh, we've got lots to get into. Uh, let's go from the top. In February two thousand and twenty-one, FIFA announced that the twenty twenty-two FIFA World Cup in Qatar, the country with the world's highest carbon emissions per capita, would be the first ever carbon neutral world cup uh, in a statement from the federation it read fifa is fully aware that climate change is one of the most pressing challenges of our time and believes it requires each of us to take immediate and sustainable climate action and fifa are saying that they are fully planning to do that they're taking accountability to deliver a fully carbon neutral world cup uh, and their initiatives 
being as follows, um, including energy efficient stadiums, green building, certification of their design, construction and operations, low emissions, uh, transportation and sustainable waste management practices. It sounds good. It sounds like they're they're ticking a lot of boxes there, but I guess it's not all as it may seem. Um, David, firstly, can you remember what you first thought when you heard that this World Cup was planning to be carbon neutral? Well, it was a mixture. I mean, on the one hand, it's really, really good news that FIFA and um, the Qataris are committed to the notion of carbon neutrality, that they're prioritising Excuse me. They're prioritizing the issue of climate uh, and doing a bit of climate education around it. And certainly compared to any World Cup that's been held before, um, the environmental policy uh, and the environmental ambition of Qatar 2022 is in a different class. So that is to be, you know, lauded and applauded. And I'm really pleased about that. Mm-hmm. Um, on the other hand, um, and this is not just for Qatar 2022, but a lot of people who claim carbon neutrality, it's a pretty problematic concept. And that's because, first and foremost, um, Qatar 2022 will still emit an enormous amount of carbon. There'll be no shortage of carbon, most of it coming from uh, air travel uh, of fans to and from, as well as the construction of stadiums and energy use and so on. Um And what Qatar 2022 is doing to be carbon neutral is offsetting those carbon emissions, which means that you're going to invest in projects of carbon sequestration, which take carbon out of the atmosphere, or you're going to invest in reforestation programs. So somewhere down the line, hopefully those trees will absorb some carbon from the atmosphere. Um, Or you invest in renewable energy projects, which, again, reduces carbon emissions. So the idea is that it should all balance out. But the problem is that, um, first and foremost, Qatar um, has probably underestimated the scale of emissions very Mm. seriously. Carbon Market Watch, um, an organization um, that uh, that is involved in the offset world, did a study recently of of the plans and much of the construction and the consequences of the construction for carbon have not been included. A couple of million tons worth of carbon dioxide has probably been missed. I mean, overall, uh, Qatar is thinking 3.6 million tonnes is probably what will be emitted. So that's quite a big emission. And then there's the problem of offsets themselves. You know, they're often used as a get-out-of-jail-free card, and it doesn't quite work like that. I mean, in the first place, we desperately need to reduce emissions now, you know, and the concrete effects of those emissions now and many of the uh, reforestation programs in particular if they work are only going to take carbon out of the atmosphere 20 30 years hence and given the kind of emergency we're in it's a bit late Mm. Um, secondly and again carbon market watch reported this there are problems with the reforestation um, things that uh, Qatar has invested in many of them do not result in trees growing but ultimately saplings dying and that's not helping anyone And then finally, the problem of renewable energy investments is renewable energy is becoming very cheap. There's a lot of investment happening in renewable energy. So it's not clear that paying up into an offset uh, for that is going to create more renewable energy. It's like stuff that was already going to happen anyway. So we're not reducing the overall level of emissions 
by investing in it. So it's a really mixed bag. You know, on the one hand, ambition, fantastic, really important. Climate education, really important. Um, and many good individual policies. But on balance, I'm really wondering whether this is a carbon neutral event. I don't. Well, I, I think we're some way short of that. Well, I suppose when when you read it on paper, their plans, and then you have experts in the field like yourself to say, yeah, you're trying, but you're not trying hard enough, um, is what's interesting here. And we're going to go through all of those points, actually, in this podcast. Um, Katie, as a player yourself, um, when you saw that, that FIFA planned to be a carbon neutral World Cup, uh, did you just see it as a step forward? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, these, these tournaments are, are held all across the world with you've got the youth tournaments, the women's tournaments and everything. And FIFA, you know, it's such a big organization with the, the power and, and potential to, to really make changes and, and show the world what's possible. Um, so initial excitement for sure. But as David's outlined, it's kind of, um, yeah, a bit dubious in the way that they've gone about it, whether that's just over ambition or whether, um, there's something a bit more behind that and that, they're just trying to cover up some things. It's it's hard to know at this stage, but um, yeah, I guess uh, <laughs> that's the way it is at the moment. Mm, there's um, there's been a number of articles that we've been going through this week and the lead up to this discussion on how misleading things have been um, from FIFA. They have their plans, but it's not all as it seems. Uh, FIFA and Qatar have claimed that the World Cup at Seiko will produce 3.6 million tonnes of carbon. Um, but Mike Berners-Lee of Lancaster University has actually come out and said the the actual figure would be closer to 10 million tonnes. Uh, whilst uh, climate scientist professor Kevin Anderson uh, at Manchester University said FIFA's claim is deeply misleading and incredibly dangerous. So, David, let's focus on that. Um, how important is it that fans and everybody around the world aren't misled by what FIFA are saying? I mean, it's important, obviously, you know, we need to speak truth on this issue as much as we can. Um, in defence <clears throat> in defense of FIFA... I would say everybody's having this struggle with measuring carbon emissions. I mean, this is the first time we've had a real proper go at measuring the carbon emissions of a World Cup. And it's not a simple, it's not a simple process. Um, I think second, you know, so we're learning and I think they're learning. Um, and I don't think that it is necessarily conspiracy here. I think it's, you know, uh, poor analysis and being rather over optimistic. Um, interesting. I don't know. I hadn't heard that 10 million figure. I think that's really interesting to hear. That's higher than carbon market watch was certainly suggesting. Um, I think we have to take it the best we can say, rather than making this a kind of endless fight over you're saying this, you're not saying this. Let's all treat this as a collective learning process, you know, and recognize that the World Cup produces uh, an enormous amount of carbon. It's a very carbon intensive spectacle. And we all need to learn and tune into that as much as possible. So I'm sort of mixed about it. You know, I think the Qataris and FIFA have been over optimistic in their underestimation. Um, but I don't think it's entirely duplicitous. I think it's also that we're just sorting out. Everybody's learning how this thing works. The real issue, it seems to me, or the really worrying thing is not so much whether they got the numbers right. 
mm-hmm. but um, whether the offset model really works or not. And if it doesn't, you know, is it possible to have a carbon neutral World Cup at all? And if that's the case, can we carry on having World Cups? And that's a really key question. I think that's where we should sort of be focusing our fire, if you like. Katie, as a player, how many other athletes do you come across who are invested in this the way you would be, say? I think there are more and more athletes that uh, are speaking up about it. I think initially what I found was it was more kind of water-based athletes actually that were more tuned into the environmental crisis especially um but I think especially as a footballer at at international level you tend to to travel and you see parts of the world and you see the impact that us humans have had on them and it's hard not to to kind of reconcile with that and the impact that we have on on the world around us so I I think it's coming more and more into focus and I'd say for athletes, the hardest thing is the hypocrisy around it. You know, we do have, uh, um, yeah, like we, we do travel a lot, um, especially at the elite levels of the game. And it's, it's hard to speak up about being an environmentalist when, when you do have a high carbon lifestyle. But I think we just need to embrace that because if, if anybody who was a little bit of a hypocrite, did nothing then we wouldn't get anything done so I think we just need to embrace that hypocrisy and still work towards positive change where we can I mean I really haven't heard many athletes ahead of this World Cup speaking out about it I really haven't and that is a problem when you know the the bodies are saying we're going to work to make this better but we're not going to bring in our athletes to understand uh, everything as well and Qatar has that it's got a number of different things going on at the moment that athletes aren't going to speak out on you know and this is certainly one of them as well and and Katie the the World Cup the Women's World Cup is going to be in New Zealand uh, and Australia next year I know I'm going and I know the amount of players who are going to be going and family members who are want you know going to be attending this event and the only way we are getting there is by playing so it's, it's a difficult one as well and and I like that you've highlighted that that fact yeah absolutely it yeah, it's it's a challenging environment for everybody, fans and players included. And I just hope that the organizations in charge can make choices easier for fans, whether it's um, more climate-friendly accommodation made available, mm-hmm. public transport for free, you know, making options easier for people that are attending the events is definitely a way forward. But like David said, I think we need to really start considering about whether these tournaments are, are viable with the current climate we're in. David, do you think there actually could be a time where this, you know, they can't sustain these tournaments going ahead? It's perfectly feasible. I mean, all of the uh, the predictions that I'm reading about the scale of climate change and the scale of carbon emission reductions that we need to mobilise to make the planet habitable over the next 20, 30 years we may well have to think about this. I don't think it's entirely unfeasible. On the other hand, I don't want to imagine a future in, you know, where you don't have a cosmopolitan celebration of humanity through football. It's like, you know, that that's the purpose of the exercise here. And it would be tragic if we had reached a situation where we'd already blown so much carbon or continue to blow so much carbon that events like this became uh, unfeasible. But it is not inconceivable. And that's all the more reason 
for sport in general and football in particular to be mobilising massive climate action within football, but more widely, because that's Mm -hmm. the only way we're going to keep this show on the road. Uh, Carbon Market Watch, you you touched on this earlier, David, a non-profit advocacy group specialising in carbon pricing have said that the calculations are grossly underestimated for several reasons. And one of those reasons, of course, uh, Qatar having built seven new arenas specifically uh, for the tournament, one of them being temporary and six uh, permanent. So um, CMW claims that FIFA's math doesn't add up because it's actually excluded the emissions emitted from cooling the air-conditioned stadiums as well. Um, and you can't factor that out. You know, you've got to include that, of course. Of course. I mean, I think the air conditioning is a bit of a red herring. Um a lot of it will be, according to the Qataris, is being powered by solar power. So, um, uh, and the actual amount of energy, you know, for the World Cup and 64 games, of course, it's carbon, but it's not a big deal. The construction, on the other hand, is another matter. Mm-hmm. Uh, and clearly, you know, gigantic levels of concrete and cement have been made and poured and steel has been moved around the world. And there are enormous emissions uh, associated with it. And yeah, those absolutely need to be included. And I think it's, you know, in the future, we're really going to have to A, be including that in any kind of sporting mega event as part of our calculations. And two, we're going to have to um, uh, build fewer stadiums, build less grandiose stadiums, but above all, build different kinds of stadiums. I mean, it is possible Forest Green Rovers uh, on a small scale, of building um, Britain's first new wooden stadium um, yeah. for over a hundred years. I mean, wood technology and construction has changed a lot, and you can now build a stadium out of wood. Um, so the carbon consequences of that, compared to one made of steel and concrete, are very different. Um, the um, you know the Climate Pledge Arena in Seattle uh, that opened recently, uh, instead of knocking it down. Um, you know, they rebuilt the stadium, right, which, again, saves enormous quantities of uh, of carbon and reused giant amounts of steel uh, and glass from the old stadium when building it. So there's a lot of things that we can do um, to reduce uh, the emissions associated with construction. Um, but, yeah, we're going to have to make that a kind of prerequisite, I think, of hosting major events. Yeah, I mean, Katie, it's... It's unsustainable, isn't it, to be building all of these stadiums for this event and then that be that. Yeah, and you can't help but kind of imagine like all that effort and energy and time and resources if that was put into actually making the event carbon neutral in a place that that could actually hold the event. You know, Um, yeah, it makes you wonder. Yeah. I mean, Uh, if I can just come in on that, to be fair to the Qataris, um, they actually have a plan for what to do with most of these stadiums when it's over, which is compared to most World Cups actually is very good. And one of them, which is made out of shipping containers is going to be dismantled entirely. Three or four of them are going to have their, um, uh, seating reduced from sort of 40,000 down to 20,000, which is a much more plausible kind of scale for Doha. And um, all of them have allocated uses, you know, whether they're going to be community stadiums or the women's national team or one of the clubs and so on. So, you know, they've done, they've done reasonably well on that. 
Uh, and again, a sort of, you know, a strict, if you look at what happened to say stadiums in South Africa, you know, where 10 new stadiums were built and three or four of them have really absolutely no use these days and are a complete drain on the public person and the rest of it. So the Qataris have done okay, I think, in, in that department. But um, again, we're just going to have to be much stricter. If we're going to have these kind of events, we can't have endless building of more and more stadiums. We have to go for something more modest. We have to go to re, you know, for reuse. We have to be creative with the materials that we have available to us. Uh, it's interesting to hear you credit in the Qataris, and uh, and I guess what we see is more so negative press. So um, it's interesting to hear your take on that. Is there a way that they could have done things better again, um, from your point of view, on this World Cup? Well, I mean, on the question of construction, you know, I think they probably could have been more modest. They could have done a bit more rebuild. And they have gone for absolute, you know, it's seven star. I mean, every single kind of technology and feature that could possibly be in these stadiums is there. Um, I mean, in a way, the big issue with Qatar is more than the stadiums, because alongside the stadiums which on which they've spent around $10 billion, which is not inconsiderable. They've spent something in the region of 200 to $250 billion on the most gigantic infrastructure program around them. So you look at something like Lucille Iconic Stadium, where the uh, final of the World Cup will be held. Uh, around that, they have built an entire satellite city called Lucille, which will house 250,000 people. And what are the carbon emissions of that? Um, That is a really, you know, and there, um, I think the Qataris, from my perspective, have gone with a very carbon intensive and rather unimaginative redevelopment of Qatar that is totally motor car dominated, super dependent on fossil fuels, super dependent on very high carbon um, forms of construction. Um, and although, again, they've done good things around solar panel and water reuse and waste management, I think there was a much more sustainable and perhaps less modest and grandiose version of the new Doha that might have been imagined and the one that we see rising. I mean, it sounds like another world. It really does. Uh, Katie, what do you make of it? <laughs> it's It's hard to... It's hard to imagine. I think, David, you went over there, didn't you? So you've seen these in person, I yeah, think. Yeah. Um, yeah. What is it like, David? I mean, is it, you know, from the naked eye? I mean, it's completely extraordinary. You can't be, I mean, it is slightly breathtaking. And um, particularly when you consider that 80 years ago, in the 1940s, Doha was a city of just 15,000 people. Mm-hmm. The largest building was a two-storey fort built by the Ottoman Empire in the 19th century. Um, And the country, you know, the main health issue in Qatar would have been malnutrition and hunger, because the only thing that made any money was pearl fishing. And pearl fishing was destroyed by the invention of artificial pearls and by the Second World War. So Qatar and Doha were a very, very bleak, very, very poor place. And then you look around, and it's a city now of 2.3 million people out of the 2.9 million in Qatar, you know, and it's uh, dozens and dozens and dozens of the most flamboyant skyscrapers and, you know, uh, American Californian scale freeways crisscrossing the desert. And it is sort of vertiginous. It's unbelievable. 
um, in that regard. Um, what do I make of it? I mean, I felt mixed about it. You know, I mean, the Qataris have kind of hit the jackpot of all jackpots. So what were they going to do? They were going to obviously build themselves a different world. And um, it's not one I would choose to live in. Like I say, you know, I think there might have been another version that was kind of greener and more modest and less car driven. And But people choose what they choose. It's not my cup of tea. Let's put it that way. I was also what I found really I really struggled with Doha is um, the complete absence of public space. Mm-hmm. You really can't walk around. There are often like there are no there's nowhere to walk. Well, you start walking somewhere and then you're suddenly dealing with like eight lanes of traffic and you don't really know where to go. And there are very few, um, you know, public squares or even sort of, you know, just like dodgy alleys and spaces where you might be hanging out. Uh, there's only really the Corniche, which is the beachfront. And um, for me, the soul of the city is in its public spaces. And there's a few parks. I mean, to be fair, there's the Aspire Park as well. Um, and I felt that was, there was a slight hole in the soul for me about yeah. Doha. Hmm. Um, well, you've not sold it to me. <laughs> That's for sure. <laughs> um, but it is one of those places you said breathtaking. Um, and from what we do see, it does look like an incredible event and effort that has gone into it. It's just, it could always be better again and, and climate change should be the forefront of everything in these tournaments right now and these events going forward and it's not been overly considered um katie how would you like to see it be corrected moving forward just instantly does it have to be further education do there have to be bigger names and sports headlining and speaking out on these topics to, to engage others yeah i think there definitely needs to be more pressure on on these topics especially um yeah, otherwise nothing's going to change. It's it's definitely like an attitude, isn't it? They've obviously not even, you know, there, there's a few things that are uh, few elements that are being thought about, but it's whole scale change that we need. And like David said, the, just the amount of investment into those um, heavy fossil fueled um, elements just, they're, they're not the way forward. We, we need to scale back and we, we need to find more natural alternatives. And I think, yeah, the more people that can speak out, the pressure on advertisers um, and pressure on these organisations to, to do better, uh, it needs to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, we touched on it earlier, offsetting. It's time for the offset education. Um, and FIFA claimed to have offset 1.5 million tonnes and will offset the rest by sowing the seeds for the largest turf farm in the world, they're going to plant 679,000 shrubs and 16,000 trees. Uh, and the plan is that the plants will then be laid at the stadiums and elsewhere around the country and are supposed to absorb thousands of tonnes of carbon from the atmosphere every year. Um, and there's quite a few ways, obviously, the general public can offset as well by offsetting flights, uh, giving money to companies to plant trees as well. Um, what... Tell, tell me more about offsetting. Um, how can the Qataris get this right after all of the input that's gone to these stadiums and the effort of the, the whole tournament? How can they get their offsetting right to try and balance out things a bit more? I mean, the question is, how can anybody get their offsetting right? I mean, I really want to emphasise that this is not just 
Qatar or the World Cups problem. I mean, this is a problem for every major event, every major industry that okay. is currently emitting carbon. So I think it's really important. This is not just the Qataris issue, and they face a problem that many, many sectors are currently facing. Um, and what really needs to happen is that the quality and caliber and the veracity of offset schemes if we're going to be doing it, need to be much better than they have been. We do have increasingly organisations that are trying to grade, if you like, and certify the quality of the offset schemes, but there have been real, real problems with those. And there are simply not enough good offset schemes that really make a difference to carbon emissions um, for the World Cup, let alone the scale of other offsetting that is required, you know, for the rest of the global tourist industry, let alone uh, anything else. So the Qataris, like all of us, you know, we're all limited by the kind of structures that we operate within. And at the moment, the structure for kind of highly, you know, really meaningful offsetting is not very good. So there needs to be a massive, you know, transformation uh, in, uh, in in that department. Um, you know, I would say one of the other things that the Qataris might think about is spending some of the money um, that they're currently spending on offsetting schemes within the world of uh, football to reduce football's carbon emissions around the rest of the world. Um, you know, because the World Cups are one off, but carbon, it, football's producing carbon literally every day, 365 days of the year. And at the moment, while they're a kind of, you know, um, in the richer countries of the global north and in England and Germany in particular, we're seeing some real change happening and some real investment. What is happening in Africa? What is happening in Latin America? What is happening in the poor parts of Asia? Um, nothing is happening at the moment. And uh, I think that would be a really interesting way. I mean, for example, you know, the whole world, the whole world of football needs to get rid of its old floodlights and have LED lights that are run on solar power everywhere. Okay. Okay, mm -hmm. so why not spend the money on retrofitting every stadium in Africa to uh, so we get rid of so you know uh, they've got solar power, they've got some decent lithium batteries, and they've got LED lights. That would be a real a, a significant, meaningful reduction in carbon, um, and in a space that it won't otherwise be happening because you know what African Football Federation at the moment can afford to invest in that they can't. So that might be an interesting way of approaching the problem. So how, how how do people actually think, oh, I'm I'm going to do that? You know, how do owners of football clubs go, this is an idea? And how do they take that forward? Is it a case of being the first kind of club or team or person to initiate it and then others copy? Is it as simple as that? Well, the good news is that, they, you know, there's a programme that everyone can get on. So we have something called the UN Sport for Climate Action Framework. I know it's a bit of a mouthful and not very appetising, <laughs> but there it is. And basically in 2018, the sort of leading international sports federations with FIFA and UEFA playing a leading role, get together with the UN and create this programme where they ask major sports organisations to sign up Mm -hmm. uh, and to commit to reducing their carbon footprint by 50% by 2030 and being carbon neutral by 2040 and to mobilise their stakeholders and their athletes and so on and so forth in pursuit of climate action. Um, and out of that process, um, we now have quite a lot of football clubs around the world um, who are on that journey. 
um, you know, in the Premier League, Tottenham, Southampton, Liverpool and Arsenal have all signed up. Uh, in Germany, you have Hoffenheim and Wolfsburg. You have uh, Real Betis in Spain. And all of these organizations, you know, they're appointing sustainability officers. They're developing a, uh, a program of work to transform the energy that they use, the transport they use, how their fans travel to games, the food offerings they make, their waste management. So it's beginning to emerge. There are, there are leading examples. There are ways of doing this. So people need to sign up and get with the program. Has anybody yet come around to the idea of the LED lights though? Like take down oh. the floodlights. Has anybody else <clears throat> done that yet? No, no, the LED, I think quite a lot of, I'm pretty sure Spurs have taken out all the old light bulbs and it's so basically LED. It's LED lights. I'm pretty sure, yeah. I don't, oh. don't absolutely quote me on that, but I, I'm pretty sure they have done. And I think that will be the norm in high-level football because you save a lot of money. Yeah. I mean, it's really like, it's a real, particularly in the energy zone, it's a no-brainer. Like, of course, Arsenal have installed a lot of solar panels on the roof of the Emirates and have got a great big lithium battery somewhere in the bowels of the stadium. <laughs> and, you know, I think like two days a week, they're producing all of their own renewable energy and that's saving them money. That's incredible. Yeah. That is incredible. And again, I get I don't hear enough about this. You know, I really do not hear enough about that. And it's fascinating. Katie, as an athlete, how do you go about offsetting and living sustainably and making those decisions day by day? Yeah, I, I guess a bit like what David said, I don't think offsetting is necessarily a solution. I think by all means, if you if you can, then go for it. But I think, yeah, being a bit more sustainable in your everyday choices is the way to go. Um, and I just wanted to touch on that. that was a really cool thought that you had, David, about um, the LED lights and putting them in Africa and stuff. And I think the thing with football is that every club has a huge community around it, whether it's in the Premier League or in the lower leagues, you know, that that community. And if a club can kind of show the way and what they can do in investing in renewable energy and just, just shifting the culture to a more sustainable one around the club, then there's no reason they can't then extend that into the community. I know I was at Southampton recently and they got the, um, the halo effect, um, where they plant trees for every, every young player that gets their first team debut and, um, just integrating it into the club culture, which is really cool. And hopefully something we can, we can see flourish around, um, yeah, around the football community worldwide. Um, but in terms of a personal level, um, I guess that my, my biggest introduction into sustainability was, uh, going plant based. I've been, uh, vegan for seven and a half years now. Um, wow. So <laughs> that's part of it. Um, I try not to fly back to New Zealand too often. I think um, COVID helped with that. <laughs> but um, yeah, I haven't been back home too much. But I guess it's just like everyday things, you know, I'm just trying to find the most sustainable alternative to, I don't buy new clothes, but obviously if I'm in with the national team, we get thrown Nike stuff left, right and center, but um, then I'll, I'll pass them on to friends and stuff. So um, just every little bit, I guess, helps. And then just using my, my voice and platform, I guess, to, to share ideas and, and just inspire people to, to go about making those changes. Um, how many people do you inspire? I mean, you play at Hearts just now. Uh, in Scotland, my, my part of the world, and I'm wondering how many people around you have you influenced to be plant-based or just think bigger when it comes to climate change? Yeah, it's hard to say. I guess um, I've, I've had uh, a bit of a whirlwind of a career, you know, starting in 
in Italy and then have played in all around England now as well and now up in Scotland. So I think um, when I left Southampton, actually, I got a really nice message to say how that everywhere I go, I kind of influence the people there, which <laughs> was a nice thought to have. Um, but yeah, it, I guess it's hard to put a measure on, but I, I decided a while ago, I was also inspired by, by people on YouTube. So that was an avenue for me to, to start creating content mm-hmm. and, and try and kind of hopefully inspire people through that as well. Um, I've been a bit quiet on it lately, but I've definitely found that it's a good way to connect with people, especially young athletes across, across the world. Has there been anybody, Katie, um, just before we move on, who who you've looked up to, you know, in sport, who have set this example for you? Yeah, I think it's it's not even necessarily the sustainability people, but I I'm really inspired by anyone who uses their platform for social good. Basically, I think as athletes, we we have a responsibility. We have um, people looking up to us and aspiring. Um, yeah, to, to play the sports that we do and, and be a bit like we are. And I think, uh, it takes courage to be able to speak out about the things you're passionate about. And, um, yeah, there, there's plenty of athletes that have done that in the past that have really inspired me. Yeah. And I want to see, I want to see the new group of athletes. Yeah. I, I want to see players who are going to this World Cup have cop on about this, you know, yeah. and, and, and even me, I'm learning so much just sitting talking <clears> to you both about it. You know, that there there is very little, I think, in ways of education and places to go to understand just how people are wanting to see the football, you know, and then there's the, the questions over your rights in Qatar. Um, and actually this hasn't been factored into the forefront, you know, of the tournament as well. Um, but I'm I'm finding this conversation fascinating. I hope you are as well. Uh listen at home. And of course, there's been an open letter. Um, as well, signed by the likes of Morton Thursby, Union Berlin player who won the BBC Green Sports Award recently, Wickham Wanderers, David Wheeler, Swedish player Elin Landstrom from Roma and Zoe Morse from Chicago Red Stars, who have all been um, lamenting claims of carbon neutrality. Uh, they say climate change is the opponent we must tackle and we're already deep into extra time. Whatever shirt we wear or chant we sing, we've got everything to gain from taking action now. But instead of taking this golden chance, FIFA's currently set itself up to miss its best shot at goal. Uh, like we said earlier, the tournament has labelled itself as the first fully carbon neutral FIFA World Cup tournament, meaning its overall impact on the planet should be zero. David, is that a bit of a, a missed opportunity? Uh, <clears throat> or have we got to start somewhere? Let me, I think it's we've got to start somewhere. I mean, we've got to start somewhere. Uh Camp. I mean, I think it also is a missed opportunity, but I can't emphasize enough. You know, this is the first time this has been done. I mean, Russia 2018, I can assure you, produced almost as much carbon as uh, is being produced by Qatar 2022 and was also funded by gigantic hydrocarbon wealth in the same way that Qatar 2022 uh, is being funded. And no one was saying anything about these issues when Russia 2018 happened or indeed, you know, Brazil 2014, which actually did make a bunch of claims. Both of those, um, you know, were saying, yeah, we're going to be tackling this issue. Nada, nothing, both from the organisers and the press. And here we are in in 2022. And now this is a serious issue being debated. And Mm -hmm. football fans 
and our football broadcasters and the football industry as a whole is having to look this thing in the eye and engage in this conversation. Um, so I think that's a major, for me, that's a major plus. Um, you know, do I wish that FIFA and the Qataris had done a more accurate, you know, carbon emissions analysis? Um, yes. Do I wish they had a more interesting uh, and more viable offset program? Yes. Um but I think this is good. We've got to have the conversation now because the program is not just mm-hmm. about World Cups. We've got to go, you know, we've got to transform the whole of the football industry because actually the World Cup is just a drop in the ocean compared to the amount of carbon being emitted by the global football industry, you know, every year. I mean, what is the carbon emissions of Nike, Adidas and Puma for all the fo- football kit that they make and they manufacture, you know, it completely exceeds the World Cup many, 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 many times over. So I think it's good we're having the debate, could do better, you know, on we go, more to be done. Yeah, um, I have relatives who are who are women's footballers and I see the amount of shirts that come in and go out and the training kits that get changed every two weeks to every month. The amount, you know, it's some things that people don't think about. They go, oh, how nice and another new kit. Oh, they've changed it again. And, you know, it brings the fans in and it generates money for the club. But actually, it's a huge waste, you know, at the end of the day. Uh, and Katie, like you say, you know, you don't accept some things from you know brands because you want to give it away because you're trying to make that change you know moving forward so um fair play to you on that because you can understand where some athletes would go this is great I'm getting all this free cool stuff and you know you want to represent that yeah but it's like David said there's a culture shift happening and it it may be slow it it probably should have happened 15 20 years ago but it's definitely happening and I think the tide is turning and I um there's definitely more athletes that are interested in the education piece and I think with the education it's only a matter of time before more athletes step up and start talking about this and start demanding more from their organizations so watch this space Absolutely. It's been an education for me. Um, David Goldblatt, Katie Road, thank you so much for your insight to this and uh, fingers crossed for change in the very near future. Pleasure to be with you. Thank you. Thank you very much. And thank you for joining us on Football's Climate Conversation, our first episode here on 90 Min. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets If you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, 
innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.